Hi, this is Austin Wintry. Welcome back to the Game Maker's Notebook and another Nerdy Composer Chat edition. This time I had the pleasure of speaking with Ilan Eshkeri, the British composer who is half of the compositional force behind the incredible summer phenomenon that is The Ghost of Tsushima. We speak in great length about his process working with Sucker Punch, his, uh, a little bit about his prior experience in games. He also has a rather extensive pedigree in the world of film, and we cover uh, bits and pieces there and just the nature of art. And then we even get at the end to uh, geek out over a mutual love of space and science. So enjoy. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. as has been the case only one prior time, I don't believe we've ever met in person before, although we've had some uh, kind of ships in the night moments, uh, like last summer at LA Comic Con, where we had adjacent panels, you talking about your ESA project that I am for sure going to want to talk about, uh, even if it's unrelated to Ghost of Tsushima. Uh, So because of that, I will say... Uh, very nice to meet you properly-ish. <laughs> well, yes, great to meet you too. Uh, I appreciate you taking some time to to get into it. I um, I think when the game, when Ghost of Tsushima was first shown, I did not expect that it would. I didn't. I didn't know what to expect. I should say, and it has become almost a phenomenon of the summer. Uh, uh, so, so first off, I'll just say uh, congrats on on. Monumentally excellent work on a game that I don't think any of us realized quite the ambitions of, and successfully achieving those, uh, no less. So, yeah, congrats, and and uh, I'm well, stoked to be able to get into it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I I had no idea what I was getting into either, and um, at, on that at that first glimpse at that stage, I think that was maybe the. The very beginning of when uh, when Sony were contacting me uh, a- about it, and um, and you know I was a little reticent, if I if I'm completely honest, uh, because because I didn't really I don't really like doing uh, projects that are about just about fighting for the sake of fighting. Um, and or for the sake of, of, of winning something. Because, <laughs> Out of curiosity, why, why is that? Is, is well, that... It's, it's not because I've got any big uh, sort of moral point of view on it. I mean, you know, I, I spent a, a many teenage years playing Mortal Kombat. Um, so so it's, it's more just because creatively or artistically, I'm not really sure how I connect with that. I'm not sure what, I see, yeah. what I'm right. I don't know. You know, I, I, you know, I, I feel like certainly in my career, I've done a bunch of action music, and uh, you know, and there's only there's only so many ways you can do a car chase before it gets a bit tiresome, or, or at least it, you know, before you need a really long break from it. So, um, so I, uh, 
uh, yeah, I, I, I was, I wasn't really uh, that into the idea on the face of it. And then the guys at PlayStation um, said, the music team at PlayStation said, well, you know, the thing we're interested in is that this score that you did for a, a movie directed by Ray Fiennes uh, called Coriolanus. And this was uh, Ray's directorial debut. Um, it was the first time we'd worked together. And, uh, and I, he, he was very nervous of music. And he, meaning what, like the classic director sort of complex that it means there's something intrinsically wrong with the film if there's music I, playing well, a large role, but, or but that, but ten times over because not not just the class that that director thing of of, of you know worrying about music and not understanding music and and you know and how it's going to affect their film and feeling like they don't have control of it, but on top of it, you're dealing with one of the great living monuments of Shakespearean acting and <laughs> and and you could kind of see him him going what how is my performance like what what is it that you're going to bring to my performance right and what is it that I'm going to bring to Ray Fiennes's performance of, of this great Shakespeare play it's a, it was a really valid question and um and so he uh I I started with with okay, we're just going to to have uh, these. It was his idea, just these very small bits of percussion, mm-hmm. um, and and then oh, it's, it's worth highlighting to just pause for a moment. I, I remember that score, um, and the percussion is is not just you know generic tapping on a drum. It's actually quite interesting and distinctive, and there's kind of a a subtle. Uh, it feels like a subtle kind of sampling or programming quality to it, where things feel kind of chopped and manipulated, as I re- as I remember. Actually, everything was played live, but it was there was no reverb on anything. Oh, is that what? It, okay, okay, yeah, because it has a very distinctive, te- like, yeah. like visceral on the ear type quality. It, it doesn't just sound like a nice room full yeah. of. No, exactly. Everything I'm amazed there's no splicing really- going on. Well, it's not. It's just. It's just really limited or, or really compressed, and and with no reverb at all whatsoever. And um, and so we just came up with this very extreme idea. And uh, and and you know, Rafe is you know he's a, he's a true artist, and we really we really connect creatively. And whenever I bring an idea to him, he he likes to follow through with it to the furthest extreme. And, um, and and so, you know, we always end up doing something interesting together and I'm grateful for that opportunity. And so what, what was it to, to get back to Ghost? What kind of what I found amazing was that this very mainstream blockbustery game was interested in this very niche art house movie that I had done. And and that. I thought, well, if you're interested in that, then that's interesting. So let's have a conversation. Then I went to Seattle and I met with the guys at Sucker Punch and they sat down and talked me through the story. It was like a sort of multimedia uh, journey through, mm-hmm. through the story. It took about 45 minutes or an hour. And by the end of that, I was I was completely blown away because this wasn't a game or project about about slicing people up with a sword it was about a a a man who was in emotional 
crisis, emotional conflict over, you know, over the, you know, the ghosts of his past and what he was meant to stand for and, and, and what he, what he needs to do in, the, in order to save the, the home that he loves and the people that he loves. And so I was really taken by, by that idea because that was, because it's such a sort of powerful emotional place that meant that all the emotions would be very heightened and that it would be a great oh, yeah. musical opportunity to, to, to write something that was, that was, you know, powerful. Sometimes you never know unless you're kind of there with a glimpse under the hood, just how much those sorts of ideas take shape or at what point during production those come about, because it's definitely very striking that in the game, I've only been able to play it maybe six, seven hours. So I'm kind of, you know, a reasonable bite into it, but I have the sense that still the vast majority of it is ahead of me and it's a lot bigger than I initially anticipated also. But still within that first hour or whatever, the first time it essentially teaches you anything about assassinations, the game sets up, you know, here's a skill we're going to teach you that you're actively not supposed to use, that it runs counter to the kind of ethical framework of the character. And mm. I, I kept thinking, what a fantastic premise for music. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that it's, it's like you said, it's not about the bluster or the machismo, it would be maybe a better way to put it, of the swordplay, even though the game is uh, does a really great job of that as well. It delivers on just the kind of, you know, the the basics of let's make satisfying samurai combat, but uh, but gives it this context. So it's, it's amazing to hear that that was sort of the agenda from the start and not, or at least from the start of when they were speaking to you, um, and not one of those kind of emergent discoveries as they went. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if that was their agenda, but it was certainly what what motivated me. And and I find th that these days, when I enter into a project, I like to I like to find what is going to inspire me artistically, and then make it very clear to the people that I'm working with that this is the path I want to take. And are they prepared to take that path with me? Because, because you know, at this point in my life, I I want to do work that I really believe in, and and that means that sometimes you know I turn down jobs that probably I should shouldn't turn down. But I I just I believe if you do good work, you know, the rest will follow. So um, so you know, I feel like there's got to be a real meetings meeting of of minds creatively for me and and both playstation and sucker punch were really supportive of of whatever ideas i threw threw at them not all of them stuck by the way but but you know but but a lot of them did <laughs> no but i i totally understand and i i deeply resonate with that sentiment of of wanting to make sure that you feel like you can actually add a stamp i remember i think it was david raxon who once said, if you're scoring a car chase, just anything fast is fine. <laughs> yeah. I remember thinking, what an incredibly reductive uh, attitude, because wouldn't it be more interesting to try to score, you know, why is the car chase happening? It sounds like you were coming from that same place. I do think that there's a choice. If you're, if you're going into the, into the profession of, of, you know, writing music to describe stories in whatever format, whether that's film or television or games or, you know, theater or whatever it is, I, I think that there's a choice where, where you can choose to do something that's quite functional 
And, and if you do that, then maybe what you're doing is more a craft and less an art. And that's completely valid. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but, is that something that you have felt throughout your career, that distinction no, and that aspiration? No, absolutely not. I, I think that, that I think that, you know, I started young, right? I started tw- more than 20 years ago um, working for, for Michael Kamen and Ed Shermer. I was and- going to bring that up, Michael Kamen being one of my longtime heroes. I, I, I was, I, continue your point, but I, I got to hear some Michael Kamen stories because he's just one of the all-time greats. Yeah, well, for sure. And I, so I, I really cherished the time that I got to spend with him. But it, it was... Uh, I, I've forgotten what I was. I was going to say, yeah, the the industry changed uh, quite quite a lot. I think it, certainly the film industry changed, and also it became much more. It, it, it was very when I started, nobody even knew what film music. Nobody wanted to do film music, and now it's like a big thing, and lots of people want to do it. And there's mm-hmm. courses that at, at, you know at colleges on it, and and stuff like that. That that you know that didn't exist twenty years ago. It wasn't it wasn't anywhere near as mainstream as it is now so so and and the way that people make music change you know when i started we were still on 24 track tape you know and well sometimes you're on sony 48 track digital but that was really amazing and then i remember when pro tools shortly still when i was starting out you know within the first few years pro tools started to become become a thing so so you know but but creatively it was very different as well because because the you know people the director of the film had to trust you because there wasn't a way to demo things the way that we demo them now and and so that all began to change and and I think as a result the 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 industry uh, shifted and there's that and then there's also at the start of your career you've got to take whatever job comes your way because you're trying to build a build a name for yourself so I think it's I th- there was a definitely a point in, in my career where where I, you know I looked at what I was doing and and I was like why why have I just spent all this time and energy uh, doing this and 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 gone through all the sort of effort and pain and you know not seeing my pals and my family or whatever to do this bit of work what is it that I got out of that you know, aside from a paycheck, you know, um, and and I, at that point, I started to realize, well, actually, what is it that I really want to be doing? And so I started to make some really tough choices and learning to say no or trying to. For me, it was, you know, also starting to to work in ballet and theater and, and, and things like that and trying to effectively make a, a career adjustment was not easy at all it was really it was really tough and, and in fact in many ways i feel like i'm still in the middle of that that shift it's kind of an emotional or even philosophical evolution did that correspond to anything like you, you mentioned uh having a daughter for example like was it was it really on the back of life events like becoming a father that you know getting married or whatever something along those lines or do you think it just kind of the passage of time i had already started thinking about it but definitely uh having having a child definitely puts certain things in in perspective for you um and and so i think that played its part but i think it was also 
I was in a position in, in my life, a very fortunate position, where I could afford to turn down some work and take that risk. Right. And, sure. you know, and, and so, you know, that was, that was just fortunate that I was able to do that and able to start trying to do other stuff. Yeah, well, but good on you for actually, you know, taking advantage of that because that's something that I, um, I, at least if relating only personally, I, I struggle with that. I, I, there have been plenty of times where I, I felt like I don't think this seems like a job I need to do or this isn't necessarily the best fit. But many years of being hardwired to kind of proactively seek out everything I could led me to saying yes almost just kind of automatically before I had really thought about it. And then halfway through the job, I thought, I don't think this was a very advisory choice. Yeah, I totally relate to that. I totally relate to that. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I, the notion of trying to find something that you really respond with and uh, can and can um, you feel like you have something to say? I'm reminded of a, of a friend who once worked with. Uh, I, I'll, I suppose I ought to leave their name out of it, but a, a rather towering figure in the modern concert music world. A friend of mine uh, worked uh, with him uh, for a while, uh, out, right out of school as his personal assistant, and he said that he got approached. The composer that he was working for got approached by Yo-Yo Ma with an offer of a cello concerto commission, which for most composers would be essentially the most plum opportunity you could imagine. Yeah. And it, but he was at a point in his life, you know, in his seventies at that point, where he said, "You know, I don't know that I have anything to say with a cello concerto." So he turned down and turned turned down Yo-Yo Ma, and you know, <laughs> untold performances that that would have led to, and and orchestras, every orchestra on the planet would have had a go around with it and but but just trusting his instincts and saying yeah i don't know beyond the physical act of putting notes on the page which of course i can do what meaning that will have and so and I, but I, and I think that i think that is so interesting we're sort of getting slightly philosophical here um but but i think that's i love that that he said that because for me, I, I really relate to that too, because the idea of, and it's kind of exactly what I'm saying about the difference between craft and art. And for me, I'm always looking when I'm, when I'm putting notes down, how, what is it, where, what's the point at which the notes stop just being a bunch of notes and start having meaning? And, and, and that's the point where it becomes a tune, where it has, it has a soul. It's greater than the sum of its parts. And I think that's true for any, if you're a painter, if you're, I think it's true of all art. There is a point at which it stops just being what it physically is and starts meaning something. And, and I find that really fascinating. And that, that's, that's what I'm chasing. And that's about art, it's about authenticity. It's about, you know, the, those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fantastic and and um, and so wonderful that somehow Sucker Punch and Sony kind of seem to intuit that perspective and that philosophy if, if they basically laid out a project that was so well attuned to that way of thinking. I uh, did. You, I mean, were there any aspects of it that that felt like you know I'm here for X, but I I still have to do Y. You know I mean because it, it, it seemed the score the score sings with such musicality. I'm not trying to 
uh, pry dirt out of you if that's what that sounded yeah. like, because I, I, I don't mean for it to. I just mean sometimes on a project, there's sort of the functional bits and then there's the part that represents the heart and soul of it. But at a cursory listening uh, from playing the game and then also listening to the album just in anticipation of, of chatting with you, nothing ever sounds like that. There doesn't it really sounds very purposeful top to bottom. Yeah, there was there wasn't anything like that, and in fact, they, they I wrote probably twice as much music as as there is in the game, because there was there were some ideas uh, that I that I worked on instruments that that I thought about using uh, that just ended up not being appropriate for one reason or another. Or that just got put to one side, and all the reggae and dubstep and things didn't make a cut. <laughs> exactly that that saxophone solo. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't understand why, but that's what they said. I oh, know. So, um, you know, I think that that's I think that's part of the journey. Um, and you know, they definitely had opinions about what they thought worked and didn't work. Uh, and. And so we, you know, we, the overall concept, we, I think we really agreed on, but then it was about, it was about, you know, getting into the detail and, and, you know, sometimes seeing how it looked up against, you know, they'd, they'd play a bit of the, the game with the music and send it back to me. And I'd be like, yeah, actually that, that isn't fast enough or that isn't, you know, there, there's, there is a, a functionality to it as, mm-hmm. as well. But they were also, they also just gave me a lot of creative latitude, which, which allowed me to be musical every step of the way. That's uh, unsurprising. I've, I've worked with those folks before, you know, uh, Pete Scaturo, Keith Leary, and I've never worked with Sucker Punch, but the, on the Sony side, at least, this allegiance towards musicality and expressiveness is something that they hold quite dear. Um, I'd love to, just for broader context, obviously you have a rather lengthy film resume and I'm still, I'm still going to angle my way into some Michael Kamen stories and uh, uh, Ed Shearmer and and those early days. But just out of curiosity, uh, where does your sort of musical story begin just in life as a kid and what kind of, set you on this path at at the start well i was uh, i played violin uh from the age of four my mum wanted me to play the violin because her father uh who, who died before i was born uh he played the violin in fact i still have his violin and um and and so uh both me and my brother learnt uh violin and my mum's a, a talented pianist and so my, my earliest memories of, you know, well, learning the violin and listening to my mum play Chopin, she was, you know, played a lot of Chopin waltzes and etudes and stuff. Um, and it was a very classical childhood. Um, you know, my mum didn't really listen to much pop music. Uh, and then and then my brother's five years older than me. So when he was, you know, in his you know, 12, 13, he, he was into 80s pop music. And so that was a big influence <laughs> on me. And, uh, and then I got a guitar when I was 13 and then two things happened. You know, I got, I got, I got a guitar and I got into Iron Maiden and Metallica and Megadeth and, um, but also NWA and Public Enemy exploded onto mm. the 
important. And so I got into that as well. And, um, and then, you know, I was fortunate, you know, I was, I was, I was a teenager, right in the middle of my teenage years when, uh, uh, Nirvana, uh, exploded onto the scene. I can remember exactly where, where I was standing when I heard teen spirit for the first time. Um, and, you know, and then in my early, and then there was the Britpop thing. And then in my early twenties, there was, there was a, a huge dance music thing in, in the UK. It was a bit, uh, it, it predated the sort of EDM thing in, in the States. And, uh, and so I was really into my techno and my trance and, and my my drum and bass. Um, in, Were in you my... trying your hand at making your own or was this purely just as a music lover consuming all this as ravenously as you could? Yeah, I, just, as a, just as a music lover. But no, I, I totally tried making <laughs> dance music, drum and bass and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. We we messed about with that. And also as a teenager, I was in bands with my friends. We used to write songs and stuff. And really what I really wanted to do is I wanted to be a guitarist in a rock and roll band. That's what I really wanted to do. But I really wanted a job in the music business. And uh, and and through friends of friends, I got introduced to Ed Shermer. And then I got introduced to Michael Kamen. At, at, what, at what age? Did you, sounds like... I was 19 when I, when I met him. Oh, wow. Him maybe 20 maybe 90 maybe 20 when i met michael so you were still i guess at a kind of crossroad of deciding if any of this was going to be practical and like was were you ever uh, sort of uh, wavering on the thought of i i might have to go you know quote get a real job well i i was i was you know completely determined i mean if i if i knew if i knew then what i know now i probably wouldn't have been so determined but but uh, no, I I was completely determined to do it, and but but of course you know nobody around my parents certainly didn't think it was a good idea, and and even I can remember even even after I did uh, Layer Cake, which was my the Matthew Vaughn Matthew Vaughn's directorial debut, which mm. was my first feature film, and and I had my name on posters all up and down the country. Even after that. I remember my dad being like, okay, well done. I'm impressed. You've proved your point. Now can you get a real job? <laughs> wow. <laughs> if only you'd but, have been able to grab them by the shoulders and say, you don't know it yet, but that's freaking James Bond. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah. Uh, well, so then uh, you say it was friends of friends that led you to Michael Kamen. It's possible that listeners of this, sadly, tragically, criminally, might not be too aware of um, who he is or who he was. He died uh, many decades too young um, from complications associated with multiple sclerosis, but he was one of the biggest composers in Hollywood of the 90s and late 80s with the diehard films and Lethal Weapon and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And uh, the, the list is extensive. And to me, he's... But He's can I also just uh, just to throw He's, in there that, that oh, also no. he did all the strings on the Pink Floyd records. He toured with David Bowie. Uh, he, you know, well, I Metallica S and M album is for me. Yeah, the, the, I remember the, doing string arrangements with him for Bob Dylan. Like you know, oh, he wow. was he was he was mates with with every rock and roll legend. Okay. You know. Yeah, I mean, was, Clapton is a featured performer on the Lethal Weapon scores as a 
perfect demonstration of that. Exactly. So he always he always had his feet planted firmly in 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 both worlds. And he wrote ballet and 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 could show. He wrote a guitar concerto for Eric Clapton and mm-hmm. uh, you know. So so he did all all these different things. And and I think maybe that's what made me think. Yeah, it's possible that I could do all this different stuff. And why I have you know, formed close relationships with, with rock and roll bands and, and done, done all these different things. Yeah, he's, he's a hell of a hero to have and to be able to have worked with him is, is astonishing. He's one of those folks I always wish I'd had the chance to meet because, you know, being in LA, I, I have the occasion pretty regularly to chat with the studio musicians who played for him a lot. And uh, everyone just always has the absolute best things to say about you know, he was just the most fun to work with. He was deeply musical. It's so funny, given his relationship with all these bands and sort of legendary rock stars, that he went to Juilliard to study oboe. You know, it's not usually that doesn't usually set one on the path towards being one of the coolest people in the room, to be blunt. Uh, but he was everywhere he went. He was always everybody's kind of. Yeah, he was such a larger than than life character, uh, and he, you know, he was. You know, he he was a brilliant entertainer. There was always fabulous dinners and people around his house and amazing bottles of wine. And you know, he he really knew how to live life well in every imaginable way. And um, and and that was that was a great thing to learn too. Yeah, it's it's astonishing. I I, I so often find myself wondering what he if he were still around, what kinds of films where he'd be where he would have evolved to as a composer and as an artist and you know as especially with you know this just innumerable giant blockbusters like the uh the marvel films and whatnot and i I always thought it would be so interesting if he could have his own stamp on a on a on that world you know and because he was so different from all the other composers and when he would do you know a big action movie or a big kind of thing it, it, it just never sounded like anybody else uh and um, it, yeah huge loss the thing that's also interesting to me though from uh if i i obviously you know i don't know i, I guess I, I should phrase it as a question it seemed like you actually were rather short-lived though in that span of working with he and ed Shermer and folks uh because your career seemed to get rolling uh, in, in relatively short order <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it felt like it felt like a long time, to be honest, uh, at the time. But you know, and also, I you know, I I should add that you know that the, there were other there was Michael Price, the composer, and James Brett. They were at, they were actually Michael's assistants mm. uh, uh, full time, and I I was on the, on on the periphery of that. So so you know, I I, I did work with Michael and, and you know had some great experiences. And then and then when those guys left, I also helped out. But there was there was also another guy called Rupert. So I, I don't want to paint a picture that wasn't that 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 wasn't uh, no, understood. But we were, but you know, but like I said, that it, there weren't that many people. You know, we were like we were all pals, and you know, we were the guys who were doing that stuff. And other people would come from LA, and we'd help them out. And so, you know, I ended up working with quite quite a few different people um, at at the start. But yeah, I did I did get quite lucky early on. I I suppose you know I was when I did Layer Cake, I was twenty, I was twenty six or twenty seven when I did Layer Cake. 
Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a running start, uh, and uh, and then only a couple years later, the film that that brought me, yeah, as someone who's just always been fascinated by the composer community and been a soundtrack nerd from from very early memories, and still and still wear that label as a badge of honor, um, despite having less time these days to be the collector that I once was. Uh, I've known your work for for quite a while, and like many folks, I think it was Stardust that put you on my radar although it was the it was not long after that there was a film called the young victoria that made me go that seems like uh that uh, elon fellow he seems like a a, a solid uh, you know reasonable composer to 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 think okay i think this is a this is a real composer this is someone who knows their way around different idioms different languages they can converse musically uh with different vocabularies and uh, so it's it's uh, it seemed like you had these wonderful opportunities to kind of explore and musically, I mean, uh, from the get go, which is inspiring to say the least. Yeah. Well, I you know what I think it's it's also just lucky, right? You, you know, there, there's there's a lot of hard work, there's a lot of luck, and 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 there's a bit of talent, <laughs> but but you kind of need all three of those things to come together. Oh, I, yeah, God knows that that uh, I punt, I punt all all achievements and accolades to luck, luck on a daily basis because uh, it's the operative thing that's easy to overlook and and it often feels like that's all that was going on. You know, when you look around at folks that are working just as hard and somehow don't quite have the same opportunities, it's it's hard not to say, well, I may have just just gotten lucky. But uh, but you do have to have the ability to capitalize on that luck and to to kind of build and, and grow, which, which you have. So uh, hats off on that. Um, but, uh, but migrating back into the realm of games then, uh, I also became aware at some point in years past that you were working on The Sims. I actually, I worked with some of the same folks at EA and I remember saying, who, who did, I was like, I heard some random cue. I said, who did that? And they said, oh, Alana Gary. And I said, I didn't know he did games. <laughs> um, was that your first, uh, um, kind of entry point to to scoring games, or is there something I don't know about? Uh, well, there, you know, there is something you don't know about, which is that I should say there are many things I don't know about, but illuminate me on at least one of them. Shortly after Layer Cake, I got into a conversation with uh, PlayStation UK about uh, doing a game that never saw the light of day, and uh, and you know what's funny about that is I. I did. I did work on a trailer for it, um, and and like I say, the game didn't happen. But some of those relationships that I formed back then have been, turned into very, very good friends. Um, you know, one of them is part of a directing duo, duo called Bert and Bertie, and and she's still a, a very good friend of mine. And then some other people who still work at PlayStation now, all these years later, albeit much, much more senior. And um, so, and I didn't work with them directly on Ghost, but it was nice to to sort of connect back to those guys. So it, it wasn't. I always wanted to work in games. I always saw uh, saw games as the, the you know the next the next step in in. I see what I do as 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 telling telling stories through the medium of music. It's it's narrative based music and. And I think storytelling is the oldest of, 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 
human art forms, right? It, 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 it began with cave painting and then it probably moved on to some kind of song singing about what you did. And, and then, you know, and then there was theater and then there was, you know, opera or ballet and, and then somebody invented movies. And, and, and then after that, somebody invented video games and, 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 but, but really it's just the same thing. It's just another medium with which we do the, the oldest thing. We're telling a story and, um, and I always saw it that way. And, and I just wanted to be, to, to, to be part of that world. Um, and, uh, so, but, well, but and you, you were you, like you, you mentioned playing Mortal Kombat growing up. So, to some extent, you were also a gamer yourself. Was that a big part of your life next to Nirvana and playing guitar? Well, totally. I mean, I can remember my my dad coming home with a Vic Twenty. I must have been six years old or something. It had some very primitive games on it but we spent hours doing that and then and then we had a commodore 64 and uh, you know you had to get load the games on a cassette and uh and i can remember you know spending my my summer holidays in in the arcade playing outrun with my mum trying to oh, nice. me and my brother to go to the beach you know and so, so yeah i mean gaming was a huge part of my life and uh up until I don't know, Sega Mega Drive, Sonic the Hedgehog, Mortal Kombat. Um, I think, you know, when I when I got to university, it, we were still playing Mario Kart, but sort of less less so. And then after my very early 20s, I, I don't really remember playing, playing video games very much. I, I don't know why. I just, I think I got, you know, those those games didn't have narrative stories in the way something like Ghost does. They were, the gaming wasn't as developed as that. And so I think maybe I lost interest. I don't know why. It just, you know, I just stopped. Did you, uh, were you able to kind of follow the industry to any extent? Like a better way to phrase this would be, were you aware in the intervening years the the growth and the development of the industry and the maturing of it, especially as a storytelling art form. Because I mean, there are games with phenomenal narratives going all the way back to the beginning, but you are right that the early history of games, I think, placed... I, I, was, I was aware that, that it, how it had developed, for sure. Like I say, I was in touch with guys at Sony and I'd wanted to do games and I knew all about it, but, but, but I don't know... I, I was I was really impressed by I, I wasn't expecting the story of Ghost to be so so compelling. It's as good a story as 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 anything I've ever come across. Like I mean, opera, film, ballet. Sure. So so and in fact, it is kind of a very operatic story in many ways. So. So I was I was really impressed with the the level of focus on story. So beyond the narrative aspect and just the emotional resonance with the story with the characters, um, one of the big talking points of the game is this devotion to authenticity culturally, um, and uh, and I, I, I clearly that extended to music. I already I came across reference just from Instagram of the kind of research that you did. But before we even get into that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you you came into this 
already having kind of swam a little bit in these waters, um, even even the idea of like a samurai story. I, I remember the movie 47 Ronin, for example. I have no idea. I don't remember. I don't think I ever heard the score. But I know that there's at least that. And uh, the part that also really surprised me was that you have, uh, and again, fill in the gaps of my ignorance, um, but you've, you've collaborated in the past with Shigeru Umabayashi. So it seems like there was actually some, there was some precedent of sorts to this, uh, or fragments of precedent to, to this project in various ways. Is it fair to say? I, on the face of it, yes, but but actually, you know, forty seven Ronin was. I, I mean, it, it's a it's based on a, a a true story, but really, that film was just a big Hollywood fantasy adventure, and the score for it was was a big symphonic Hollywood fantasy adventure, and. Um, and I, I sure I used a bit of shakuhachi and a bit of koto, but I didn't really trouble myself with trying to work out uh, what what those instruments actually did. I, you know, in fact, I, you know, I bent them quite out of shape, and it was quite difficult to record them because I just wrote what I wrote and got them to play it. But the the focus of those films wasn't authenticity. The focus was was write a big fantasy epic. And uh, and the score I did with with Ume uh, was uh, very early on in my career with, with um, it was Hannibal Rising, the prequel to the Hannibal Lecter movies. And uh, we collaborated a little more closely on that score. Um, how, how did that come to be? How did that collaboration just to kind of because I never that's a story I never came across is how the two of you ended up together on that film. I, you know what, I, the film was being produced by Dino De Laurentiis, who was one of the great uh, Hollywood movie moguls. He worked, did, made early movies with Fellini, oh, yeah. and he just gave Schwarzenegger his first role in Conan the Barbarian, and and he made Barbarella and and Flash Gordon, and you know he was he was really like one of the yeah. greats. And um, by the time I got to work with him, he was in his 90s. And he just, the, in, in the story in Hannibal Rising, there's a Japanese influence on, on Hannibal. Um, so we had this idea that parts of the score would, would be uh, uh, contributed to by Ume. And, um, and, and so that's when we collaborated. And then on Ghost, it was, it was kind of different because the PlayStation and Sucker Punch had a very clear idea about what they wanted Ume to do and what they wanted me to do. And, and our paths didn't really cross apart from for a really very memorable and fabulous dinner in Tokyo. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. But, 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 you know, I have a good lot of respect and admiration for Ume. He's an incredible composer, so I'm really proud to be able to share credit with him again. So does that mean that it was... Because I, I remember talking with... Um, I think it was Keith at Sony who who said that um, they were they were really fond of the House of Flying Daggers score, and that that was at least a big part of what excited them to bring him to the table, which would almost suggest, assuming that's accurate, that would suggest that it's actually kind of coincidental that you guys had worked together in the past 
uh, because you were independent independently yes. of interest. Yeah, it was a complete coincidence. You're absolutely right. It was completely coincidence. Yeah, that's so funny since these, you know, your career, at least uh, from, from uh, again, my, my limited um, my limited depth, uh, but just it's relatively normal that composers tend to do things alone. And so those those collaborations or if not direct collaboration, the, the carving up of a project amongst multiple people uh, it tends to be less common, and so it's just very funny that that uh, of all the composers in the world to have this kind of duo uh, twice for without any kind of partnership as the pretense as to why is, is funny. And I wouldn't have guessed that. As soon as I saw the two of you, I thought, oh, this must somehow relate to Hannibal Rising. Um, shows what I know. That's very funny. Well, I mean, you know, it's uh, you would think so, but yeah, but it's just... Uh... I, you know, life takes funny turns, doesn't it? Who knows? It's just, it must just be written in the stars somewhere. Yeah, exactly. You, you, Maybe we've got a third col unsuspecting collaboration coming our way some point yeah, in the future. Yeah, well, it seems like they come around about once a decade or so, so you may have to be patient for it. But um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, other than your uh, apparently fabulous dinner in Tokyo, were you... Were you exposing him to your material and vice versa? So if not direct collaboration, was there that kind of sharing of ideas? No, no, not at all. We literally worked separately from each other. And why do, Why was that? Why was that pitched that way? Or would you just, like, how aware were you, basically, is actually a better way to ask that question. How aware was that what was going on? I Well, when I when I came on board the project, I I made it, you know, I, I said that I was very happy to collaborate in whatever way they wanted me to with Ume and that I was very open to that kind of collaboration. I also made it very clear that, that I, I wanted, you know, I wanted it to be a happy collaboration because there are, you know, there's potential for people to, to, to get upset or to feel sidelined sure. or anything like that. And I, and I, so I was, I was, would not be prepared to to work in a competitive way where I worked on one thing and he worked on the same thing and you know that that's not you know yeah, that would be very odd I, I'm not for that kind of thing so have you ever been in that boat because I, I I would be I would have been astonished if Sony was interested in that so yeah I know and and now knowing I you know I just met these guys at that point so I was just making it very clear what kind of collaboration I would be up for but they decided to just split it out into Ume is going to do this you're going to do that and don't worry about it we'll make it work and so and so I was really uh I, I was really happy with that I was like okay that's fine I'll just get on with the bits how much just as a kind of pragmatic question um how much music did that end up being at the end of the day I mean I did a hundred and something minutes of music and and his was the impression I have is that he didn't. It's a, it's slightly asymmetric in that, uh, especially particularly all the kind of systemic end game stuff seemed to largely fall on your shoulders, and so that, you know, maybe yours is more than half of the score. In other words, I think that that might be true, but I don't think you know. I don't think you can add art up in 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 that way. You it's know, certainly not a. It's certainly yeah. not a scoreboard. If that was. If that sounded like that's what I was implying, yeah, I'm just curious. No, I know, but you, you know, 
you could, you know, you could write a pop song with somebody and all they wrote was a sort of four note riff, but that might be the thing that made the song, right? And so who's, you know, whose contribution was, you know. I, oh, you yeah, know, you, just... you got me there. I would never disagree. I mean, Leonard Bernstein was the one who eloquently pointed out that, you know, one of the greatest contributions to Western civilization was Beethoven writing four notes, three of which are the same note. So... Uh, it's, right, uh, exactly. it's, uh, uh, yeah, there's, I, I definitely don't ask with any kind of pretense of, of value judgment on that. I'm just always curious how these things are made, uh, purely, uh, logistically and sort of how the work gets divided up, especially in the realm of the, the idea of composer teams, t- team in the loosest sense, but just like a collective of people contributing to a project. Um, I've been on both sides of that and, you know, or I should say across the spectrum of that, where it's, as you described, also very uh, team-based, very collaborative, you know, where it's the, the composition crew is one unit, you know, trying to conquer the score. And then, of course, the normal pattern of doing things alone. And um, So, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Again, a, a tribute to the good casting, I suppose, uh, of you and Ume and also just of, the vision presented from both Sony and Sucker Punch because it doesn't come across in game as a back and forth between two different approaches to this story. That would always be the concern that I would have, if nothing else, just as a gamer, that it's kind of like, oh, I'm in the, I'm in the kind of, I'm in the Ume part. Now I'm in the Ilan part. Uh, but it never comes across that way. In fact, if it weren't for the soundtrack album, um, it would be difficult to know where one starts and, and stops, which is interesting because it's also not that the two of you are generic composers that are easily interchangeable, but it just seems that both really clued into the vision effectively of the, of the studio. And again, I, I might be projecting yeah, here, I, but that's my, that's my read on it. No, I, I, I think you're right. And I think the fact that it works is really credit to the, to the PlayStation team. Yeah, how involved, I mean, the impression I got and also just from past experience working with them is that, you know, it's a pretty tight-knit collaboration and that they are kind of co-producers start to finish. Um, yeah, they, they are absolutely, but but whilst also allowing a tremendous amount of creative freedom. Were you used to that level of involvement uh, from, you know, the folks on that side relative to film experience? I, yeah, because I... I got to say, I my the way that I look at these things is it, it's always collaborative, right? I, if I'm if I'm working if I'm working on uh, any project, then then the you know if I'm write, if I'm writing a ballet, then the choreographer is my collaborator. He's my artistic collaborator. I want to know everything he's doing or she's doing, and I want them to know everything I'm doing, and for us to create together but in our different you know focusing on our our own things and and i feel the same way you know when i when i you know we spoke about ray fines but when i collaborate with rafe i i feel you know completely i feel like it's completely legitimate for me to comment and discuss things that are outside of the music um as as well you know i feel like we're just a, a big team trying to make uh, a bit of art together, and so I I actively encourage as much uh, uh, as much involvement from everyone as possible, 
Um, so that, you know, you, you feel like you're a team, you're making something Yeah, together. I, I really couldn't agree more. That particular line of reasoning comes up a lot when discussing games. There are composers, like young composers asking for career advice will often put to me the question if it's important that they be gamers in order to score games. And I always try to say, well, look, no one can tell you who you sh need to be or what you need to use your time doing. But if I was a game developer... I would feel far more comfortable collaborating with someone that really understands this medium and engages with it less as a composer who just writes music that's almost coincidentally for games, but as a game developer who specializes in music. And the same in the same spirit as what you're describing, where you're working on a film and you are a filmmaker who happens to be contributing the score. And that kind of gives you a license to throw in a comment about that cut or you know what the implication of that shot framed that way by the dp versus this other shot might have or the color timing or whatever um and and so too those people might have thoughts on the music that you would you know be interested but, but and of course you're, you're absolutely right because at the end of the day what you're doing is is you are you the job is to is to express a narrative an emotional narrative through the medium of music but 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 what you're doing is is you're telling a story and and uh, you know you're not just a composer you're first and foremost a storyteller and and i think people have to people who want to get into the, the get into this kind of work have to acknowledge that i think you know when i you know i've talked a lot to to film composing students over the years and i and i'm always amazed in these courses that that reading a book on on how to write scripts how to structure story isn't part of the, <laughs> isn't part of the yeah no kidding because i think well you know that that's got to just be a, a you know, a basic, a fundamental thing. You need to understand the medium in in which you're working, and you need to understand that that telling the story is is more important than writing the music. It's the same if you're a costume designer. If really what you wanted to do was make clothes, then you'd be a fashion designer. You wouldn't be a costume designer. If what you want to do is tell stories through the medium of film or theatre, then you'll be a costume designer. I really couldn't agree more, especially that idea of go, go read a book on screenwriting and a book on editing and a book on directing. And uh, I've always, I, I always thought I was unusual at first because I just loved the art of filmmaking so much that even though I had no directorial aspirations or, or uh, I never wanted to be in the edit bay, that kind of thing, it, it was so fascinating to get to hang out with those people on every project. And it makes, it makes you a better composer. So the, I guess the, the natural place that leads to then is how much were you able to integrate with the team? You mentioned at one point that they would send you uh, clips of the music in the game and that you could kind of react and rewrite or rethink things in response. Were you able ever to get builds of the game to uh, to play it in progress? And, and... No, they, I mean, they kept that stuff very close to them. I did play it when I, when I went to visit them. Um, I I played it a very very sort of early version of it um but uh but no i did i didn't get to play it as i was, as I was going along and also uh, playstation were, were the, the the music team at playstation they were all over the sort of implementation of of uh of the music in into into the, mm -hmm. the engine um 
And that stuff, the technical side of that, that really fascinates me. And I think that bit's quite important because when you're, that, that's the thing, that's the skill that you need to develop that differentiates uh, game music from, from yeah, others, absolutely. from all other genres, is that you need to think about how your music can be deconstructed and put back together. And every bit that you're writing, you know, often if you write a pop song or anything, you know, the viola line, it's, it's just a filler, right? It's not doing anything interesting. But I find that in writing game music, every line needs to be able to potentially stand alone. And 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 so you're having to work in this sort of almost it's not just linear it's like got a third dimension it's not just about time passing it's got a sort of vertical dimension of, of these different bits that need to be able to work together in in different ways and i think that that musically i think we're still at the dawn of that i think that 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 is a a skill that i'm fascinated by it's a great uh, um, it's a it's a, it's a technical challenge, but it's also an artistic challenge, and I think there's a long way to go with that, and a long way to go with developing the engines that can use those things and the rules of how that's all going to work. I think that's a really exciting creative. Yeah, place. well, you're you're in you're certainly in my in my sandbox uh, when we have this discussion because that's kind of my central focus as a composer on games is these interactive systems. And um, it seems I, I haven't been able to play the game enough to really kind of get my teeth in to figure out, you know, what kind of interesting tricks that uh, you all came up with, but how much was that approach or how much was the, the approach to the implementation sort of spelled out where they told you, okay, here's, here's the way we're going to kind of, uh, plug into this system or were you able to kind of back and forth a bit and say oh well you know what if the music did this when the player did that and 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 kind of develop something more proprietary I, I did not really get to to get in i didn't get to delve into it in that way i i was really focused on the on the, the on the artistic end of it and so i would say well you know i'm gonna write it in this way and will how will you will that be useful will that be you know it was it, it was a bit of i mean of course i do this in the sims as well but but doing it this with with in this way on this game was it was a, a bit of a learning curve for me and so i i didn't get that deep into into the the, the structure of the you know of, of how it was going to be playing right. back but i but artistically i thought in a lot of detail about about how the different elements would interact with each other within the, the, the you know within the, the structure of, of the music and how i would write it so that it would work easily within the game engine there were some basic things where because because uh the instruments are not chromatic uh in, in sort of feudal Japanese instruments that they're not chromatic so you would just be stuck mm -hmm. in a scale so if you wanted to write something with authenticity you would just be writing it in a five note scale the whole way through so I wrote a lot of music like that um and and that 
of course, made it very easy for for different bits to go with other bits, and because because it, you know they, they they were all the same five notes, so you weren't going to get uncomfortable clashes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, um, so so you know that I mean that's a very basic thing, but then you know I was very careful to make sure that that you know the it would have been really easy to take the taiko drum parts and just have them booming away in the background, and uh, and when you know, when the track's going full pelt, then you probably wouldn't be able to tell the detail of what's going on with taiko drums. But the taiko drums are always uh, either with or mirroring uh, parts that are within the rhythmic parts that are, you know, the the, 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 the cellos will be playing a rhythmic part and, and the, the taikos will have the answering phrase to that rhythmic part. So, so there's a lot of play between the instruments uh, and, and the sections. And so I, I think that that really was useful for them uh, to, to be able to, uh, to, to, to put that into the engine and for it to, to work well and to still, when, once it's deconstructed, for it to still feel musical. And that's really what my, where my head was going. Yeah, and that challenge can be um, borderline insurmountable sometimes because in order to make things maximally fractal, uh, they can become sort of just little Lego bits that don't seem to have much intrinsic musicality. And, and there have been many scores that sacrificed their their musicality and their lyricism and expressiveness on the altar of interactivity. And then, but then also plenty others that sacrificed all player agency and interactivity on the altar of musical expressivity. So. I think because of that and just that ch the, the challenge, uh, you are spot on to say that it's still the art of interactive music still has a long way to go. As, as incredible as the gains have been till now, that challenge, that fundamental kind of almost oxymoron that's baked into the premise of it is, um, is daunting. But, it, but that's, where I, that's why I was curious to learn more because it, it's so elegant when you play the game and you listen to the music. It, uh, it, like both the album presentation and the experience of it in the game, uh, it's just it's just classy. You know, it doesn't feel like oh yeah, well we're just kind of cutting along drum drum patterns and a lot of the kind of lazy. You tricks. know, sorry, go ahead. You know what what was I I don't I feel like and you've done more work in in games so so you can uh, you can tell me what you think but but I. I, I, there was something that happened a few years before that I think I, that, that set me up for this in a, in a useful way, which is that I, I was writing a, a contemporary ballet and uh, and it was going to go on tour. And I said to the to the MD of the ballet company, I said, well, you know, what what's you know, what instruments can I have? What's the instrumentation? Because, you know, it's going to be limited because mm -hmm. they're on tour. And he thought for a second and he said, I tell you what, you can have one of every instrument, which meant I could have one flute, one oboe, one clarinet, <laughs> one bassoon, one horn, one trumpet, one trombone, one first violin, one second violin, one viola, one cello, one bass, one percussion, one keyboard. And so I thought, un okay, unblendable that, ensemble, basically. <laughs> I was like, that is a hell of a challenge. <laughs> I mean, that's really quite, quite difficult. Um, uh, but, but I loved it. And the it's way Stravinsky that I feeling, approached, uh, in a sense. Yeah, but the way that I approached it is I had this idea 
that I would that I would write these bits of music and I would write a line for one instrument, uh, a phrase, eight bars or 16 bars, and that instrument would just repeat that phrase over and over again, exactly the same, just getting louder the whole way through the piece. And after one time through that phrase, another instrument would join in and play another phrase that didn't necessarily go very well, that didn't seem like it was that linked to it, but went with it nonetheless. And then another instrument would join and another instrument would join. And some of them were melodic patterns, some of them were more textural things, but every instrument played its own phrase and played it over and over and over again till once it joined in, Till the sort end of, of the a piece. Terry Riley concept in a way, I suppose. Uh, maybe I was just—it's just what I came up with, and 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 uh, and then of course the great thing is that you break—you know—the points at which you just decide to break the rule. Right. Um, but but then then after that, I did a TV show and uh, with the director I've worked with a few times before, and in this TV show there was a lot of different characters and they were all woven in with each other. And I said to him, "I tell you what, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to write you one piece of music, and it's going to start each each line of music is going to be a different character, and and they're just all going to stack on top of each other in in a in a you know in a way that it sounds like they shouldn't fit together but they do fit together and it's going to build up into this big dramatic thing and and i said and then i'll give you all those separate parts and you cut it in in the end that was a very ambitious idea and he really tried to do it he really went for the idea and i really am grateful to him for that but in the end we wrote six pieces of music for an eight-part TV show, and that was it, and and used them in different ways, but all with exact this exact same idea. And when I started writing the the combat music for Ghost, I applied exactly the same principle, um, and it's just been the, a way a, a challenge for me, a way for me to write. But I think applying that principle uh, was very uh, very effective for for putting it into the game engine. Oh yeah, I mean the ability to be simultaneously modular, uh, but but linear, <laughs> uh, is um, yeah. is a trick. <laughs> uh, yeah, what an amazing. No, but I think it's setup. a really good. That's a, it's a and it only came because of that ballet project, but but I. I think it's a really good exercise uh, for, for people if, if they want to get good at this kind well, of what writing. I, what's, what's, what's cool, though, is, you know, the, 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 the mention of um, Terry Riley, you know, one of the founders of minimalism was that those modular bits often, part of what makes pieces like NC or Music for 18 Musicians work is because each, each bit by and large is somewhat innocuous so that it's all about the aggregate effect of everything coming together. But what's interesting is that's not how I would describe the ghosts writing. Um, it's not like it's just a bunch of bricks that are getting stacked on top of each other that individually don't have much to say or comment on. I, I actually am surprised to hear this kind of backstory to the compositional process because it doesn't make that impression, well, which is uh, which is to your credit. Well, it's only it's only for the combat music, but it is it is like that. But I just got to a more having done it a few, you know, three or four times. I got to a more complex place with it, where the where the structures that repeated were really complicated. They would be like four part right. structures, and then they repeat. Um, 
but but yeah it just got it just got more increasingly complex um but yeah i mean you know i could i could show you i could break it down it is built it is all built that way yeah i, I mean it's you know you're as a as a uh unapologetic music nerd you know i'm always that i'm one of those un, unafraid to say oh god give me a score i want to get into it uh but uh um <laughs> something that's kind of related to this but since you mentioned the limitation intentionally limiting it to you know the kinds of scales that would have been true to feudal japan um what was kind of the nature of the research? What did you go in feeling like you already had a had a grasp on? The, the obviously anything orchestral is automatically not feudal Japan. So then there's also the related question of when and where do you kind of lean one versus lean the other? You know how how much was that a struggle? I'm kind of giving you a buffet to choose from here, but walk me through. Yeah. Okay. Well, I. You know, I the first thing I did is I I started to to try to understand how how do these uh, how, what are the main scales I I met up with this amazing professor one of the sort of leading scholastic people on on uh, Japanese music uh, his name's Dr David Hughes and he was incredibly generous with his time and and taught me a lot and one of the first things I realized is is that well, there, as far as I could tell, there's two main pentatonic scales that they use. I, I mean, I'm really no expert. I've just got enough knowledge, uh, small enough knowledge to be <laughs> yeah, dangerous, sure. you know. But but but, but there's, there's two, and I certainly, I used, there were two main scales that I used. And, um, but but it's sort of, you, you, they just have five notes, right? But the shakuhachi will play the, can play these five notes. And that's what it's designed to do. And you get shakuhachis in, in different keys. Um, but it can also bend up to a note and it can overblow a note. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can have, you have those five notes, but you've got a semitone below and a semitone or potentially a tone above as well. And the Koto can, has those five notes, but it, but it has, uh, you could bend the string so that it can go up a semitone or, or perhaps a, a whole tone and so they they are pentatonic but they are but but there's flourishes that you can put in around the the pentatonic uh thing and so i had to learn all of this it was really it was very time-consuming and then sit with the players and 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 have them show me what worked and what didn't work and you know and, and just try to understand culturally you know I, I got to work with this uh japanese musician who lives in in the UK called uh, Joji Hirota, and he, he's an incredible and uh, you know plays a variety of instruments, but but he's an amazing percussionist. And he talked about this this idea that you know the sounds of nature are part of the sound world of 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 uh, the music. You know, like like the obvious example is is uh, wind chimes. You know, it, it's, uh, the bird tweeting and the wind blowing is part of the sound of it. So the, so that that was in my head the whole time I was writing. There were all these different things that I needed needed to to learn, and and then uh, learning about uh, the folk music from the island, and then one of the amazing most amazing discoveries for me was the biwa, which is uh, the instrument that the samurai used to learn mm -hmm. to play and they used to sing tales of their exploits on it and and, and i may be romanticizing the story a little 
Um, but but I think it's accurate that that as the the tradition of the samurai disappeared in the sort of the you know after the Second World War or maybe a bit before then, the 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 the, the tradition of playing this instrument also disappeared until there was only one great master of it left. And that great master taught a handful of people who are still around today. And one of those people uh, is uh, this lady, a Japanese lady who lives in Spain, and uh, her name's Junko Ueda. And she's a really spiritual and, and powerful musician. Um, and and she came from Spain. Luckily, we didn't have to get her to come from Japan. And she came from Spain and spent a day with me, showing me around this instrument and performing extracts uh, of famous pieces uh, for me and singing. And um, and it's a, it's an amazing instrument. It, Were you able to work with her on the score? Yeah, she it's it's in the heart of the Gito opens with her playing this this. Uh, uh, piece of music that that is an incredibly famous piece of music based on the the haike, which is a text that everyone learns at school in in Japan, and and it's a dead cool instrument. It comes with this giant plectrum that is like the size of a fan, and 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 you whack the instrument with it quite you know often really hard, um, and so uh, you know. That was that was an amazing discovery, and so I learned all this stuff, and I really spent time learning from the musicians, um, and then and then there was the orchestra. You know, you have, you know, I look tried to look at other composers. There's a very famous Japanese composer called Takamitsu. Mm-hmm. He said it's not possible to combine uh, re- to really combine the, the the Japanese instruments with the Western instruments, and he wrote pieces for both. But it would typically have a bit of orchestra then a Japanese instrument, then a bit more orchestra. And I, I didn't and, realize there was almost a uh, philosophical belief in a way that they couldn't intermingle. Cause I always found it curious. I never looked into why this was. I always found it curious that he seemed to alternate in an almost binary way between the two modes of thinking as it were. Yeah. But the thing is, is that, you know, the, the, the Western music is chromatic and, and so you've got 12 notes and Japanese music has got, five notes and so and so you know that that's that is hard to combine and so my solution was was i'm going to and also there's no tradition of chords or or harmony in the way that we have in in uh, western music right and so i thought what i'm going to do is i'm going to write everything for the for the symphony orchestra in uh pentatonic scales so everything that they play is playable on a Japanese instrument. And that's how I'm going to ground it in a, in a sort of foundation of authenticity. And to solve the, the chord problem, I made chords out of the pentatonic scales. And I developed an entire chord system and rules for how I would use these chords um, or how I, you know, how I would build these chords. And... And and it kind of worked great because because what it meant is that you had lots of chords that were that that were notes that were next to each other you know like a second apart um, as a, you know a, you know that you'd have a you know for the meso nerds out there you'd have your your root a fourth and then a second or your root a fourth and a fifth and that right. would be a clashy chord but of course the emotional context of it was all about about 
being you know clashing together so so that worked really well it was very emotive and um and then there were the points at which i would just throw the rule book out the window and 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 you know and and those make for powerful moments too but for the most part you know like for example the way of the ghost that piece of music has five notes in it from beginning to end nothing else it's it's a very pure uh conceptual composition in 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 that way i've always loved that kind of uh it's 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 like bach you know you, you start with three notes and you write an hour of music uh and uh i i that that the economy of material and and stretching yourself to to not kind of just slather on more novelty but to really stick to some kind of pure heart is a challenge most composers are are not up to uh and uh, it, it's i didn't realize just how kind of strict you were about it because you can definitely hear when listening to it that there are especially harmonic uh rules uh of of this nature but i wouldn't have guessed that you were that uh strict with yourself and uh, that's awesome I, I i love hearing that were there ever moments where you uh kind of waffled on this for example there's an intimacy to a lot of these instruments, the koto and shakuhachi, and like they 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 invite a reflectiveness and an intimacy that the the symphonic orchestra is sort of represents the opposite of. And obviously, you have a wide spectrum of emotions to cover where it will be obvious when maybe one is more appropriate than the other. But were there ever cases where it wasn't actually obvious if this should be a big moment or a small moment, or it should lean on the the Japanese soloist, or if, if the orchestra should be a bigger voice in it, that kind of thing? Um, I, I think for the most part, it, it was quite clear. There was a, there was a couple of, of cut scenes where, you know, we went around them a couple of times to, to get them right and tried it big, tried it small. You know, it, it's all, it's part, part of the journey, working, working that stuff out. Um, but I, the, I always wanted to highlight the, the solo the, the the japanese instruments it was always all about them and the orchestra was always an accompaniment and then sometimes you know like in a violin concerto where you know it's all a it's all any concerto and they play the the solo instrument plays the tune and then the right. orchestra plays it huge and that's really satisfying but it's but but it's still the orchestra it, the orchestra is still secondary because when you hear it huge you've somehow still got the memory of the solo playing it. And so I, I was trying to, to, to do that with it so that you were always focused on the Japanese instrument and not on the, the orchestra for the sake of the orchestra. Yeah. I, uh, it, it's funny how that, that, uh, it really does seem to come through, you know, sometimes we start off with these lofty ambitions of the kind of sort that you're talking about, but then just the reality of delivering the score, forces us to kind of just become a little bit more practical or, 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 or have to sidestep some of that just in, in the, in the uh, effort to deliver. <laughs> and it's just so wonderful to hear that you, you, you pulled it off. But that, that's where it come, comes back to sort of earlier in our conversation where, where I, where I was saying, be careful, choose carefully who you collaborate with. And I set out right at the start, this is how I'm going to do it. This is what my approach is going to be. Uh, you know, are we 
are we all on board with this? Because let's really commit to this idea. Let's commit to a purity of, of concept, of, of artistry, so that we can do something do something amazing. And, um, and, and you know, to, to the credit of PlayStation and, and Sucker Punch, they really supported that. You know, a, a funny aside story that just just thinking about about that though the the trouble with trying to work in in a, a musical culture that that is is you know not something that you don't really know and that you don't really understand that you're just trying to learn about so you could you could definitely make some pretty bad mistakes. There was there when we when I was writing for the for the Tycos, um, I found that they they were there's a whole bunch of words about. 40 words that they say traditionally as, as, a, as a, you know, to, to get them from one bit to another bit to or just for effect, just as part of the music. But there's quite, quite specific sounds, or, but they, they don't mean anything. They're just, you know, they're just syllables. Uh, I didn't realize and, that. Um, and so I use them in, in, uh, in uh, the track, We Are Samurai. And, um, and, when we were recording with the Taiko Ensemble in Japan, uh, they started doing these chants and halfway through, they just burst out laughing, like literally just fell about in hysterics. Oh. And somehow I had put three of these syllables together in, in, in a certain order and a certain rhythm that sounded like a really rude word in Japanese. And, uh, oh, and so we had to change it. Uh, that's so funny. But, they're, but they are... I heard you correctly. You said that those chants are actually essentially just sounds. They're they're not um, they're not actually words. No, they're not words. They're just they're just sounds. Like you know, we you know you learn it in music all, all the time. Like I I don't know what system you learn, but they're, they're different ones. But I learned rhythm with ta ta te right. ta ta. You know, there's like a you know they're different. They're different things, or you could learn, you know, like solfage, do, re, mi, so far that you know, it's just like a, a set of musical words that has become traditional for for taiko dramas to to say. Um, yeah, that's funny. I I I've never I've listened to that. I've been to performances of amazing taiko ensembles, and um, I somehow never realized that that's where that was coming from. That's that's great. Um, well, if that's the worst of your cultural missteps, I would say you you did quite well. Uh, and uh, um, one one other question though that that props to mind is one of the touted and in honestly very cool aspects of the game is it's um, the Kurosawa mode um, and uh, this kind of love letter to Japanese cinema in the same you know, kind of on the other hand, as it's a loyalty to this wildly different time period uh, of the of feudal Japan. And the thing that's interesting is a lot of those Kurosawa films have very kind of brusque, modern, almost modernist orchestral scores that are very intense, to say the least. Um, and yeah. I, I didn't really pick up any of that in in your work but i'm just i just found myself curious if there was ever given given the importance of kurosawa's um spirit in the game if there was ever any flirtation with something along those lines i i don't i think the ambition for the music was was really 
far from far removed from that. And I think as much as I I am as big a fan of Kurosawa as as, as anybody, and and I love those scores, but there is there's something a little old fashioned about about them. Oh, They're amazing works of art for their for their moment in time, and and in fact, and also sometimes they do they do they do use uh, Japanese melody or you know something that sounds a little bit uh, Japanese in the orchestra but but I, I feel almost in, in the modern context it almost sounds like like you know it's it's sort of been appropriated in a in in an inappropriate kind of kind of a way and I think that if I if I'd started writing orchestral music in in fifths and fourths and and the, you know that sort of thing that we would you know that that's even some of the great classical composers did you know if you listen to like or Verdi, uh... yeah or tchaikovsky uh doing the the chinese music in in um the nutcracker i think i think that's it almost sounds like it's bordering on racist and and so it's very reductive I, I think it yeah it, it, needless yeah. to say he did not Tchaikovsky did not spend a day with a Japan via Spain scholar on a given instrument and a professor of of Japanese musicology and so exactly so the so the aspiration for authenticity um which came from from their you know from sucker punch's aspiration for authenticity uh you know that inspired me for me to say well I'm going to do the same thing with the music led me really far away from from any kind of Kurosawa yeah, score. Yeah. I kind of figured, but I was curious if there was even a temptation because the Kurosawa mode in the game is just so cool and so striking that it would have been potentially tempting to to pay similar homage musically. Yeah, I, I, I can totally see why. And and you know, it could have it could have gone that way and it would have been a very different uh, kind of score. Yeah, yeah, and probably not quite the gripping, <laughs> world imagination-capturing one. So before we close it out here, and I appreciate you indulging a lot of a lot of inquiry on my part. No, it's great. Um, something that's completely unrelated to any of this, but I would just love to hear uh, a few words on is we both around the same time did a project which in the broadest possible sense could be described as a musical love letter to um, science. Uh, uh, yours, I don't know actually how much yours was specifically catered towards the science aspect of it, but your collaboration with the European Space Agency um, was, it's very, I don't know if you're aware of a project that I, I worked on because I think we were both working with um, Chandler Poling uh in tandem uh, uh well yeah what but, was um, what was your one it's called a light in the void and it was basically a ted conference with scientists where i set their their talks about their work to music and we performed it with a full orchestra where they would they would speak while the orchestra plays as if it was a dramatic monologue and then interwoven with uh some actors doing some kind of theater-esque uh, elaboration on what the scientists had been had been uh, getting into. Wow, um, that sounds incredible. I've got to, will you send me a link? I've got to have a, is it, did they video it? Yeah, we streamed it and, and there's a recording and I, I will happily do so. Oh, man, one yeah. of the I scientists. I would love to see that. 
I think it would be up your alley. And, and one of one of our scientists, the kind of finale of the show was Carolyn Porco, who was the lead imaging scientist on the Cassini probe, right. which had which had just prior to our premiere done its uh, suicide dive after a 20 year mission into the atmosphere of Saturn. And so it, it quite piqued my interest to see um, your project. And so just uh, I've read a bit about it, but pretend I haven't and just tell myself and our our listeners a bit about that because it just it was a beautiful thing and, and really exciting well i think the easiest way to explain it is to say is to talk about how how it came to be so so what happened is um i got followed on twitter by by somebody from the european space agency uh, so of course I followed back because who wouldn't? Right. And yeah, exactly. And for those who in America, the European Space Agency is our version of NASA. Um, and I think everybody, everybody with any interest in this, became keenly aware of the ESA when the um, the asteroid landing uh, occurred. Right. Uh, um, the um, blanking on the name of it uh, of the of the lander. But that was a that was a very much an ESA baby that captured our attention very much here. So they uh, so so you know and he, this, this guy said, well look, the astronaut Tim Peake, British astronaut, is uh, a fan of your music, and um, and you know would you mind having a chat with him? So uh, so uh, of course so 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 I spoke with Tim and 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 he said, look, you know I'm about to go up to the International Space Station. And when we're up there, we make these films and the, the, the films always have really bad music on it. And, uh, and I really like your music. And would you consider doing some music for me? And I was like, I mean, yeah. I mean, if an astronaut asks you to write some music, you're going to say yes, right? So, so yeah, I, I can't th- ever imagine a scenario of going, well, you know, I have to choose my collaborators very carefully. <laughs> yeah, right. Not so sure you make the cut. So then he said, well, look, the thing is, 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 is that, you know, we, we don't have any money because we spend all our money on space travel. And I thought, well, yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, and he said, um, and I said, well, that's fine. No worries. Just invite me to the rocket launch. And he said, well, uh, that's actually a bit tricky because, you know, it, it, it's in Kazakhstan on a, on a, on a Russian spaceport. It's really hard to get to and people aren't really allowed to go there. Because at that time, before Elon Musk's uh, rocket was taking, you know, just recently taking people up to the space station, the Soyuz, the Russian Soyuz was the only way up and down to the space station. But uh, he said, so, you know, I, I can't do that for you, but why don't you come visit me at, at NASA Johnson? And so so I went to, to the Johnson Space Center uh, and spent a couple of days getting the tour that money can't buy. I got to go on the replica space station, try on bits oh, of a spacesuit. It was really some, one of the most inspiring times of my life. And I had a great dinner with 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 Tim. And by the end of it, I just I I I thought, why are we making a, a like a, a six minute film? Like why don't we make like a like a big giant show and. Uh, and uh, we could tour it and you could talk about space and I could talk about, uh, you know, I could play some music. And um, and that's how the project came into being. And uh, and and my thought about about it was that, you know, there's a lot of information about space travel, about the International Space Station, a lot of science and 
what I wanted to do was was try and bring across the emotional side of it. What is it? Because because I think all the yeah. astronauts would agree that that it's a profoundly changing experience being up there. And 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 one of the astronauts said to me, you know, when you go up to the to the space station, you you one of the things that really dawns on you in like a big way is is that the astronauts spend all their time looking out of this module called the cupola. It's got six windows and a circular window at the bottom and you get like really good images of Earth and they love staring down at our home. And mm-hmm. and they uh, and and as you stare down at the home, the astronaut said you realize that that we're all stuck on this giant ball traveling through space and and that we've got to look after the vessel we're traveling on and the people we're traveling with otherwise we're not going to survive and that really hit me and i thought if i can in some way musically through through music and images express that sentiment um then then uh that emotional sentiment and that thing that in one way or another all the astronauts experience um then uh you know that well anyway that's what i wanted to to attempt to do and and it's great that we're talking about it uh right now today because today is uh is the uh year anniversary of our first and sadly only concert because of covid-19 but our was was the debut concert that we did in stockholm um, and it's actually exactly five minutes till we walked on onto stage um, a year ago and performed it for the first time to ten thousand people who who stayed the whole time and didn't leave. I was very relieved to to, to see by the end of it. That's just incredible! Uh, what a beautiful uh, everything, <laughs> every aspect of that. I, I I just I resonate more than I could articulate. Um, and that's uh, that's fantastic. And I think it really highlights where this conversation began of asking yourself, what kinds of projects do you want to do? You know, we don't have unlimited time in life and unlimited bandwidth to put our efforts towards and the things that we choose to to use that bandwidth for better mean something. My little phrase I often say is the thing I write today should hopefully be something that justifies being the last thing I ever wrote in case I walk out the door and get run over by a bus. And uh, there being it not just functional in life or ideally, hopefully, if you're lucky enough, it's not just there to put food on the table or make sure the bills are paid, but can actually speak to something deeper, or more important to you. Yeah. Um, and you seem to exemplify that uh, in ways that I, you know, I, I've admired your work for years, but I had no idea that this kind of consideration in your work and but it really I'm connecting the dots here over the last hour and change and it, it's it's just wonderful yeah well great well uh, you know thank you and uh, you know I feel like we're, we're kindred spirits on the on that journey so um so you know it's been been great chatting to you about all of it well the pleasure is absolutely mine I hope that and it's hard to imagine it won't be the case uh, that ghost leads to a proliferation of further game work from you, uh, and certainly uh, such that it also doesn't damper on your theater, ballet, film, television, and uh, Spaceship Earth writing as well. I don't want to, I don't want to engage in 
in an Elon Eshkeri zero-sum game of uh, overtaxation on your musical output, but I certainly think that we would benefit from hearing your music uh, in games more and more. Um, but if nothing else, a hell of a job well done on Ghost of Tsushima, and um, thanks for getting into it with me. Great. Well, thanks very much for having me on the show. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.